Genesis chapter 1. Now, I hope that you all don't mind that. Uh, uh, I went, well, first of all, I'm going to ask, ask you if you can to stand and read this with me. Verses 1 through 5. Now, as you're standing, uh, and we're getting ready to read verses 1 through 5, I have to confess, we're actually going to read uh, uh, the verses uh, 3 through 5, uh, because that will be our text next week. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And uh, so, I, I just want to give you hope that we're moving on. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 5. Let's read it together. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your great mercies and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for all of your word from the first word in Genesis to the last word in the, in the book of Revelation. And I thank you, Lord God, that you have established your existence, your power, your might, your wisdom, and your purposes in a single sentence. And we are thankful, Lord God, to be able to say that we are your servants, as well as your sons and your daughters and your friends. And we ask that you would continue to enlighten us with your word, encourage us with your word, and continue, Lord, to equip us with your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You all may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. If you were paying close attention, and by the way, let me, before I begin, I just want to say that if you weren't able to be with us last week, it was our first week in our study of the book of Genesis, I would really encourage you to, to get the CD from last week and, and uh, get caught up right away. That won't take very long to do if you, if you weren't able to be here with us then. But if you were here and you were paying close attention to last week's introductory study of the book of Genesis, you may have noticed uh, that I left out a very significant name. Uh, from the evolutionists that were mentioned, but I'm sure that they wouldn't have become <clears throat> they wouldn't have become evolutionists without the theories espoused and promoted by one Charles Darwin. I purposely didn't mention <clears throat> him last time because it was important to establish, without any reservation whatsoever, that God in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. Now, there are countless numbers of people in the evolutionary sciences. You'll notice I'll do this a lot because I put scientists usually around uh, with quotation marks around it, especially if they're evolutionary scientists. But there are countless numbers of people in the evolutionary sciences who extol the near worship, uh, to uh, extol to near worship the person and work of Darwin. There was one uh, Darwinian evolutionist and atheist, Frank Zindler, who, in a debate with Christian apologist William Lane Craig, and just for those who may not know what an, a Christian apologist is, it is as a person who is uh, well-studied and well-read and, and, and one who defends the faith of Christianity. And William Lane Craig is one of the, uh, the best Christian apologists out there today, going to college campuses and, and uh, debating many uh, atheists and evolutionists. But this one uh, Darwinian evolutionist, Frank Zindler, in this debate with uh, William Lane Craig said this, and, and I quote, he said, The most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve were never real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. 
If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was original sin. If there never was original sin, there is no need of salvation. If there is no need of salvation, there is no need for a Savior. And I submit that, uh, I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. Interesting. I don't see anywhere that Christianity has had its funeral yet. As a matter of fact, after statements made like this, uh, again, uh, William Lane Craig had him for lunch. Well, anyway, you have to hear the debate. But this is the kind of influence that Darwin continues to have on much of the scientific and philosophic community today. Because if Darwin was right, man is simply an animal with no moral accountability. And his sinful sexual desires are merely natural survival instincts. He can do as he pleases. And this is what Darwin himself wrote in his autobiography. And I quote, A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of future existence with retribution and reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. End quote. Now, is it any wonder, with that kind of philosophy in mind, is it any wonder that a person like Adolf Hitler and the leaders of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany embraced Darwin's theories? There have been many, many more, but this is one of the prime examples. That Adolf Hitler, the, the leadership of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, embraced Darwin's theories, providing them with a scientific justification for the policies that they pursued once they came to power. Policies and practices such as eugenics. If you don't know what eugenics are, well, that is the study and the practice of selective breeding applied to humans. They had policies and practices such as euthanasia. You've heard of euthanasia. Do you know that literally euthanasia means a good death? But they practice euthanasia, which is the practice of ending life in a painless manner. They practiced infanticide, the practice of intentionally killing an infant. Of course, abortion. And worst of all, if you can say worst of all, racial extermination. And so, the contrast, the controversy and the contention between Darwinian evolution and Christianity may be formidable and somewhat frightening, but not impossible to make clear distinctions as we saw last time. We learned last time that verse 1 alone, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The verse 1 alone pushed aside atheism by asserting and emphasizing God's existence. It pushed aside polytheism or the uh, belief in, in many gods. It pushed aside polytheism by declaring God is one. It swept aside pantheism by separating Creator God from matter because God is transcended above His creation. So let's add to that list what verse 1 also refutes. Verse 1 also refutes materialism because matter had a beginning. Verse 1 refutes dualism. Because God was alone when He created. Verse 1 refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. As a matter of fact, the greatest character of all of Genesis, the book, as well as Genesis chapters 1 through 11, is the person of the Lord God Himself. And lastly, it refutes evolutionism because God created all things. Things just didn't happen by chance. God created all things. We learn from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ our Lord was the Creator and is labeled as such by Paul in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. But I'd like to add to that reading that we had last week, verses 12 through 17. For here it says in verse 12, "...giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light." who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
For by him were all things created that, uh, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So Jesus Christ alone, not the evolutionary process or even natural laws, Jesus Christ is worthy to be exalted. And why? He is worthy to be exalted because He created all things. Well, this is a song that is sung in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11. Many, many years ago, we used to sing this song often, and I hope we will start singing it again. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, as we prepare to examine and exposit the first five verses, well, today we'll do verses 1 and 2, but as we prepare to examine and exposit the first five verses of chapter 1, there are a few facts that we need to consider and we need to remember. First of all, the authorship of Genesis is given to Moses, even though we don't know exactly how he received it from the Lord. It is safe to say that he received it by divine and direct revelation from God, and then recorded the revelation as it was given to him. And since there are so many who question his authorship as well as the creation question, it is fair to say that Moses didn't write Genesis chapter 1 according to the theories of creation current in the schools of his day. Even though uh, Stephen in his great message given in Acts 7.22 brings Moses into the picture as he's giving the history of the Jewish people. And he writes in verse, or not writes, but he speaks in verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. Now, some have taken that particular thought and said, well, evidently because he had grown up in Egypt and learned all the wisdom of the Egyptians, that he would have a slant in his giving of the Genesis story uh, from, a, from a, an Egyptian perspective. But Egyptian myth hypothesized or assumed, dealing with creation, Egyptian myth assumed a primeval ocean upon which appeared an egg. Bear with me. And from the egg that was on this primeval ocean was born the sun god. And the sun god had four children. Geb, Shu, not Shu like what you're wearing on your feet, but S-H-U. Another son named Tefnut. And one, I guess they just simplified his name and he called him Nut. Geb, Shu, Tefnut, and Nut. That's nuts. But anyway, from the rivalries of those God-born children of the sun, the creation took place. Thank God Moses didn't bring that into the picture. But then again, there were other epics. There were other creation stories, like the Babylonian epic I mentioned last week, the Enuma Elish, which is the story of... Uh, of plot and counterplot among the gods and, and the story of banquets and rivalry and war. And then, of course, you know that the Greeks had pictured a mythical giant named Atlas standing at the borders of the earth, upholding the white heavens on, uh, on tireless head and arms, and, and not only the heavens, but actually the earth itself, which was he was bearing for some reason that the gods made him you know, bear this, this uh, earth on his back and... And just to get a little break, he actually put it on Hercules later and, you know, for a little time. Well, let's not forget the Hindus. Because the Hindus thought that the world rested on the backs of three elephants, which in turn stood on the back of a giant tortoise. That's got to be a big tortoise, which swam around in a cosmic sea. So Genesis... One avoids all these gross ideas and simply says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And so that is where we're going to begin here today. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Bereshit Elohim Barach. The first three words or first three statements that are made. Bereshit is in the beginning. Elohim, God. And the word for God is Elohim. 
It is a plural word used with a masculine singular vowel. This is very important to understand because in the past few years some modern Bible translators have decided that it was important to make the, the Bible gender neutral. And therefore there isn't, you know, he and she's, but them and they's instead. And, but this is wrong. Because even in the very first sentence of the Bible, God is spoken of with a masculine singular name. Attached to that is the I am at the end, which always means plural. So what does that mean? It means one God, but more than one person. It describes a triunity as we know that today, because we believe that there is a God and He is called Father in the Scriptures. There is a Son uh, in the Scriptures and He's called God. There is a person called the Holy Spirit and He's called God as well. Three persons, but one God. We can also call it a uniplurality. One God in three persons, or more than one person. So as the scripture unfolds, we see that God is being revealed as this triunity, three persons in one God. So even in Genesis 1, we will see as we go through this chapter, all three persons of the Godhead actively involved in creation. And then the Hebrew word for created is the word bara, B-A-R-A or B-A-R-A-H. Bereshit Elohim bara, which means to create out of nothing. Now there's a Latin term that is used theologically for that uh, happening, and that is the word ex nihilo, or the, the phrase ex nihilo, N-I-H-I-L-O, if you're interested. It means to create out of nothing. Only God can do that, you see. Only God can create out of nothing. You see, men can make things. A lot of times men say, well, that guy just created this great song. No, well, there was already songs and there was already the ways to create that song. Or, you know, they make a great artwork. He created this great, uh, you know, uh, sculpture or whatever. Well, we use the word, but we understand he didn't create it out of nothing. He took materials that were present and, and, and made these things. So, man can make things. The word for making things in the Hebrew is asa. So we know it's different than bara. And then uh, a man can form things which is the Hebrew word yatsar, but he can't make things out of nothing, which is bara. Only God can create out of nothing. You might hear that in certain experiments, scientists are creating life in the laboratory. They are not. They are not creating life in a laboratory. They might be adding intelligence to previously existing materials, forming things, making things, but they are not and never will bara creates something out of nothing. You have to believe, now listen carefully, you have to believe in either an eternal God or in the eternal existence of matter. Those are your options here. You either believe in an eternal God or you believe in the eternal existence of matter. Now, an honest scientist will tell you that the eternal existence of matter is impossible given the laws governing the material universe. And so the eternally existing God of the Bible, Elohim, is the only alternative available. Dr. Henry Morris, one of the great creation preachers of all time. Dr. Henry Morris paraphrases verse 1 this way. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. The transcendent, meaning the God who created things out of nothing, therefore He is above all His creation. The omnipotent, the all-powerful Godhead, not just uh, a singular God of the one person, but one person in these uh, three persons, the Godhead. Whenever you see the word Godhead in Scripture, it deals with the fullness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space, mass, time, universe. So this leads us to understand the next phrase in verse 1, the heaven and the earth. 
By the way, I've been asked about the word heaven here. Why is it in the King James heaven and heavens in all the other translations? Well, because it can also be stated as heavens in the King James. King James, why they left out the uh, S, uh, uh, because the word actually is plural in, uh, in the Hebrew. It is shamayim for, for uh, heavens. I am at the end, of course, again, is plural. So it's really stating the same thing. But now, what you need to understand is what it represents. The heaven and the earth. The heaven would be space. The final frontier. No, space, the first frontier, because it was God speaking it into existence. Now, understand this, space would be heavens. Some have said that the word Shamayim itself is really a combination of two Hebrew words. Uh, that means there waters, or there be waters. Waters, of course, is Mayim in the Hebrew, and, and, and that is, uh, you know, to say that, of course, where we receive water from, of course, the sky, the heavens, as we'll see later in the creation of the firmament and all of that. But nonetheless, it's dealing with that space and then earth. Notice, earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth, likewise, refers to the component of matter in the universe. As we shall see at the time of initial creation, there weren't any stars or planets or any other material bodies in the universe. And they didn't come into being until the fourth day. The materials of the universe were spoken into existence by Elohim. The materials of the universe were spoken into existence by Elohim. Everything that needed to be made and made was made by God when He spoke it into existence. Space, mass or matter... And time. Because when it says in the beginning, time began. Why? Because God is eternal. And God's eternalness is a different time continuum than our own. At least here on earth. Actually, when we get to heaven, when we get to be with God for, for eternity, then we enter into His time continuum. Until then, the time of this earth began when God spoke creation into existence. And so, it is important also to note that matter includes energy as well, and you will see why in just a moment. So now here's an important question leading us to examine verse 2. When did God do this? When did God do this? Many scientists especially astronomers, suggest that the universe is at least 20 billion years old. Now, the most renowned system of biblical chronology, which is that of a person named James Usher, places creation at about 4004 B.C., less than 7,000 years ago. Now, how can we account for this apparent discrepancy between science and the Bible? Scientists fail to take into account that when God created the universe, He created it with an appearance of age and maturity. You see, the things that throw scientists off is the fact that they measure, they measure distances, at least in space and all, by the speed of light. And that is certainly an important factor that we're going to deal with next week because we're going to deal with light being created. But... Um, they don't take into account that when God created the universe, He created it with this appearance. An appearance of age and maturity. If the world was created as we know it today, only seven to 10,000 years ago, let's just give it that little cushion as, as it were. <laughs> then you pick up any rock out on the mountain, you know, or, or out in your backyard if you have rocks, that are real rocks, not, uh, you know, broken up concrete. But if you take real rocks, then you're not looking at something that was created two, 20 billion years ago, but really within that time frame of seven to 10,000 years ago. But then everything is, except you and me, because we're, we're born much later than that. But the point is this. 
Light, as we see in verse 3, simply filled the universe at God's command. Light simply filled the universe at God's command. So, in a couple of days, as we go through this chronology of the creation, in a couple of days there will be trees. Listen, there will be trees created already bearing fruit. What is that? It is the appearance of age and maturity. I want you to consider something too. Turn to John chapter 2. As you're turning there, some of you will say, I know what John chapter 2 is about, especially the first part of it. It's about Jesus and the disciples being invited to a wedding. You remember that? A wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it says in verse 1, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus uh, saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, (coughs) do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone. I kind of think it's interesting the, uh, the numbers that are mentioned here. The six uh, water pots of stone. They're big, huge water pots, by the way. But there were six of them. Kind of interesting because there were six days of creation. The manner, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, in other words, these water pots were used for purification, containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, I haven't measured things by firkins lately, so... Uh, that would represent 20 or 30 gallons of water. Uh, Jesus saith unto them, that is each of them, by the way. Jesus, uh, Jesus saith, uh, saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they fill them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. In other words, go take some and take it to the, to the ruler of the feast and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not uh, whence it was, where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is the worst. But thou hast kept the good wine. Until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. You see, it wasn't that uh, Jesus, you know, the great, greater part of the miracle isn't so much that he, you know, took water and made grape juice. No, he made wine. That is the greater miracle. Why? Because you see, the ruler of the feast assumed that the present was the key to the past. In other words, he reasoned based on what he knew happens in the present. What happens in the present when it comes to winemaking? The wine had to come from grapes grown on vines, grapes that had been harvested, grapes that had been crushed, fermented and bottled. He thought it had taken a long period of time. But he was wrong. Jesus had in fact created this wine. You see, God created a mature, fully developed creation because it was meant to be in existence immediately so that when Adam and Eve walked the earth three days later, their food needs would be met. That's a God that looks over, looks over and cares for His people. Makes a lot of sense too, doesn't it? So with that in mind, let's look at verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I've added the New King James Version here. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering, it says, over the face of the waters. The word move there is more precise in what was happening. Some Christians have looked at this verse as a result of some catastrophe which destroyed the original creation of verse 1. This is what is called the gap theory. G-A-P, gap theory. Not talking about a clothing store. We're talking about a gap of time. 
And while there are variations to this theory, the most basic is that the creation of Genesis 1-1 may have taken place billions of years ago with all the geographical ages that the atheistic scientists talk about inserted into a tremendous time gap between verses 1 and 2. Now verse 2 is said to be the description of the earth after a great cataclysm devastated the earth, leaving dark, leaving it dark and covered with water. Now, the catastrophe is usually explained as a divine judgment against Satan and his rebellion against God. So they'll take you to Isaiah chapter 14, where Lucifer is cast out of heaven with a third of of the angels that followed him. And uh, then they have to say that at that point he ends up coming to this earth that was created in verse 1. And because of that divine judgment and uh, and, and because of his presence that God... Uh, after this cataclysmic judgment, had to recreate the world in the six literal days described in verses 3 through 31. Thus, within this period of time, the gap theory proponents say there was death and destruction before Adam sinned. But, consider what the Apostle Paul writes. Because Paul understood there was no gap between verses 1 and 2. For Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, says, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, through one man sin entered the world. Who's implied here? Adam. Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Continues that particular thought in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, when he says, For since by man came death, which man? Adam. By man, speaking of Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. So what is Paul saying? Death and destruction did not come when God created the earth. The heavens and the earth. Besides... What God created is good, isn't it? God is a God of of life, not of death. God created life. As a matter of fact, throughout the Old Testament, man is given choices. The Jews were given choices. The Israelites were given choices. What was the choice? Choose life. You have before you death and life. You have before you curses and blessing. Choose life. Choose blessing. Why? Because God is a God of life. He created life. So gap theorists, uh, gap theorists I should say, maintain that words, the, that words found in verse 2, without form and void, and the word darkness, proves that this destruction of the original creation, allowing for millions if not billions of years to pass before the recreation. But the phrase without form and void simply means unformed, and uninhabited. That's all it means. And the word darkness on the face of the deep means that the universe was without energy of any kind. Not that the universe was fallen, that the universe was evil and needed uh, recreation. The materials that God created out of nothing, the materials that God created, uh, speaking them into existence, on the other hand, now were ready for God, the Holy Spirit, to do what? To act upon, which He did by moving upon the face of the waters. Moving upon the face of the waters. That suggests something very great and scientific. That the Spirit of God moved meant that He shook or that He fluttered. Scientifically, He vibrated or energized and set the universe in motion and continues to empower it. What did we we read about Jesus in His creation, uh, in in Paul's creation statement of, of Jesus being the Creator? That in Him all things are held together. 
So the implication is as well that God is still in control of all the things that He has created. The idea of vibration, the idea of movement, the idea of shaking and fluttering is actually a scientific thing. Something was created. What was it? Some kind of energy. What do we study today in the sciences? And you know, in almost every science, there is the study of waves. There are sound waves. And many other kinds of waves that are studied and, 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 and learned about. Why? Because that is an energy force in every type of, of both biological and geological sciences. So it is here now where certain laws were established. The law of gravity for one. As things are now formed, got to keep things on the earth. So gravity, the law of gravity is established. Also the laws of thermodynamics. Now, I'm going to try to do this quickly, but the laws of thermodynamics, especially the first and the second laws of thermodynamics, if you understand them right, very clear about the creation of the universe and about where the universe is going to at this point. So it's interesting that in my researching the laws of thermodynamics and desiring to simplify them because I want to make them real clear, I, I ran across this statement attempting to explain the second law of thermodynamics. And it was on a website I, I came to realize it was uh, pretty much an evolutionary scientific type of a website. Uh, with those things in mind. But I just started reading some of the <coughs> things that I was saying about the first and the second laws. This is what it said about the second law. It said, heat cannot be transferred. It actually says transfer, and then I put in parentheses on my notes, S-I-C or SIC, because uh, that's exactly how it was on the website. Heat cannot be transferred from a colder to a hotter body. As a result of this fact of thermodynamics... Natural processes that involve energy transfer must have one direction, and all natural processes are irreversible. This law also predicts that the entropy of an isolated system, entropy meaning uh, that which uh, becomes uh, deteriorating, the process of deterioration, uh, entropy of an isolated system always increases with time. Entropy is the measure of the disorder or randomness of energy and matter in a system. Because of the second law of thermodynamics, both energy and matter in the universe are becoming less useful as time goes on. Now, that would have been a good place to stop. But here's the next sentence. It says, and I underlined this in my own notes, perfect order in the universe, capital U, perfect order in the universe occurred the instance after the Big Bang when energy and matter and all of the forces of the universe, capital U, were unified. Where did that come from? That's not part of defining what the second law of thermodynamics is about. So they have to insert their thoughts. Well, that came out of nowhere. But I'm glad they had a syllabus on this website of all of the terms that are used in these uh, particular papers. And so uh, in the syllabus for this site, the Big Bang is defined this way. Now listen carefully. They define the Big Bang as a theory that suggests that about 15 billion years ago, all of the matter and energy in the universe was concentrated into an area smaller than an atom. Now, I wonder how they know that. Because they never observed that. And science is about observation. So they're making great assumptions here. And they're saying, well, it, it was concentrated in an area smaller than an atom. At this instant, matter, energy, space, and time did not exist. Then suddenly, the universe, capital U, remember I talked about that last week, they capitalized the U, almost as if to say that's really their God. The things of, of nature, the things of, you know, as it were. So, in the universe, uh, let's see, where was I? The universe began to expand at an incredible rate, and matter, energy, space, and time came into being. As the universe expanded, matter began to coalesce into gas clouds and then stars and planets. Some scientists believe that this expansion is finite and will one day cease. After this point in time, the universe, capital U, will begin to collapse until the big crunch occurs. 
I've heard of the Big Bang, but I've never heard of the Big Crunch. What's that? So what's the Big Crunch? So I looked it up in the syllabus. And it says that the Big Crunch, the big crunch is the collapse of the universe into its original form before the Big Bang. At the end of this process, matter, energy, space, and time will not exist. How existential. How presumptuous. How do we know? Again, we're dealing with faith, aren't we? I believe, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I believe he spoke it into existence because God, if God is God, can do that. I don't need an explanation. But I believe that evolution and all of those who purport all of these things can only believe it by faith as well. Because there is no observable evidence of the laws working in this particular manner so that they can give their commentary and add it with no regard to scientific proof. Thomas Kindell. By the way, if you want to know how his last name is spelled, K-I-N-D-E-L-L. Thomas Kindell is a Christian and a creation scientist. And he spoke at the Seattle Creation Conference of 2004 and he shared some tremendous insights into the laws of thermodynamics and God's creation. By natural law, he said, by natural law, the universe cannot create itself. And what he was dealing with when he said that was the first law of thermodynamics. That by natural law, the universe cannot create itself. So already the evolutionists have a problem. If they think that all of a sudden there was no matter, time, and space, but then because this little atom exploded, now there's time and space. Because they're saying, see, they have to believe the first law of thermodynamics, but then they contradict themselves by saying that this is how, you know, that the universe came into being was out of nothing. So, Kindell says, by natural law, the universe cannot create itself. And then he says, the second law says that the universe had to have a beginning. The first law says the universe cannot create itself by natural law. The second says that the universe had to have a beginning. So what then do we need? What is it that we need? We need something supernatural, you see. We are going to need something supernatural, something that is transcendent to the limitations of space and time and natural laws, something that is above the natural laws. We need an omniscient, omnipotent creator who transcends all these limitations. Omniscient meaning all-knowing. Omnipotent meaning all-powerful. Creator who transcends, who is above all of these limitations. One who is eternal and had no beginning and therefore needs no cause to explain his, or his origin. Now, Kendall spoke of the scientific law of cause and effect. How many of you have ever heard of the laws of, of cause and effect? I know more of you, more you went to school. Come on, right? let's see your hands. All right, all right. Cause and effect. It's something that every scientist needs to try to work with. For every effect, and here's the, here's the, the, laws, of cause, the laws of cause and effect. For every effect, there must be also an adequate cause. For every effect, there must be an adequate cause. And that no effect can be greater than its cause. No effect can be greater than what caused that effect. An, eff an effect can be lesser, but never greater than its cause. And so everything that had a beginning requires a cause to explain its origin. This is one reason why so many scientists, even non-Christian scientists, some of them are agnostics, but they are turning toward what? They are turning toward intelligent design. Why? Because they are looking at design throughout all of the universe and throughout all of the world, and they're saying, because this design is here, it requires a designer. It is an effect that requires a cause. And the evolutionary scientists 
are ready to throw intelligent designers, uh, design theorists out of universities. How many of you have had the opportunity this week to see expelled? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. That's what you were learning there. How the evolutionists in college campuses today are blackballing people of intelligent design. Some of them are Christians, others are not. But all of science, folks, all of science is based on that single axiomatic law being true. Uh, if cause and effect, and this law is not true, then there is no such thing as science. So there are four things that you need to understand. First of all, the universe, including time itself, the universe, including time itself, can be shown to have had a beginning. The universe, including time itself, can be shown to have had a beginning. Secondly, I know this may be fast, so write fast. Secondly, it is unreasonable to believe something could begin to exist without a cause. And folks, even evolutionists believe this. They have to. They're forced to believe this. It is unreasonable to believe something could begin to exist without a cause. So thirdly, the universe therefore requires a cause. Now before I give you the fourth one, let me say that at this point, usually evolutionists will in inevitably ask the question, but where did God come from? Right? So where did God come from? That's like asking, to whom is the bachelor married? Kind of ridiculous, absurd, isn't it? See, the problem is they don't understand the definitions of the words that they're using. Because God, by definition, is an infinite, eternal spirit without beginning and without end. Not bound by time, but greater than time, transcending any need for a beginning. God didn't need a beginning. He always has been, and always will be, and always is. That is why His name is, I am, that I am. No beginning, no end. So for God, as creator of time, is outside of time. Since therefore He has no beginning in time, He has always existed. And so doesn't need a cause. Why? Well, let me finish. Only something that had a beginning needs a cause. But he doesn't need a cause. Why? Because he is the cause. As a matter of fact, we can call him the first cause. Indeed, we can say he is the only cause. Because that's the way it is. The first cause of all that has been created is infinite. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is moral. He is spiritual. He is volitional. He is truthful. He is loving. And He is living. Now think about it as the first cause in comparison to all of the effects of this creation. The beginning of the universe. The cause is infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. What about the moral aspect of man? That's an effect of something. It is an effect of a moral God. To have spiritual qualities that animals do not have. The effect is us having that way of communicating with God. But why? Because the first cause is spiritual. 
As a matter of fact, the Bible says he is spirit. Volitional because he gave us free will. Truthful. Human love is an effect of what? God's love. The very fact that we are alive today, I hope, is because God is living and always lives. And because no effect can be greater than its cause, science shows us that God must exist based on real science. What is that? Cause and effect relationships. I've got to close here now. So we'll pick up at this point going into chapter 1, verse 3. Yes. Because there's a lot of other things I want to say before we get into verse 3. But but not too many more. But I don't have time to do it now. But man today, let me just close with these thoughts. Man today would rather trust Darwin than Moses. It's so obvious. Man today would rather trust Darwin than Moses. They forget that the science of Kepler and Copernicus and even Newton in some instances is obsolete today. And that the theories of today's scientists will be just as archaic in 10 or 20 years. And yet they're still trying to sell people on this idea that the, the, the universe began by chance, out of nothing, 4.5 billion years ago? No, let's push it back. 15 billion years ago? No, we need a little bit more time. 20 billion years ago? I've even heard it up to about 30 to 40 billion years ago. Just to give us enough time so we can be where we are today. But we have God's own statement concerning origins. And the world should be challenged, you see. The scientific world, the evolutionary world, the atheistic world should be challenged when they claim that Genesis 1 is unscientific. We'll talk a little bit more about the laws of thermodynamics so we can prove that God's creation is quite scientific because He created science. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Let me leave you with Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Let's pray.